Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassengame, and I am your host. Today, we have Michael Dash. Michael is a recovering addict and the best-selling author of Chasing the High, the founder of Fate, From Addict to Entrepreneur, a mentor, speaker, and philanthropist. He struggled with multiple addictions throughout the course of his life, with the main one being gambling, which he was introduced to at 11 years old. He was struck with an unrelenting drive to succeed in life, but Michael's addictions grew to also include work, cocaine, marijuana, and Adderall, just to name a few. He worked harder and longer than anyone he knew and built a $5.5 million a year company. After growing resentful of the very business he built, he made some intense life changes and realized that true fulfillment is helping others in relatable situations to change their lives as well. This led Michael to write Chasing the High and Build Fate, F-A-T-E, a program designed for entrepreneurs and business leaders to take back control of their compulsive and addictive behaviors and step back into the leader that they were born to be. Michael is insightful, hilarious, and energetic, and he shares some incredible information in this tell-all interview. Please enjoy Michael Dash. All right, episode 56, let's do this. Michael Dash, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. And I'll tell you why. Because I understand most addictions. I can relate to most addictions, even some of the weird ones, okay? I can imagine myself in the shoes of that person. Gambling addiction is one of the ones I cannot relate to. Gambling terrifies me. I have no understanding of why this is. There must be something wrong with me, but gambling terrifies me because I want to know I'm going to get my money's worth from whatever it is. And I would rather buy something than gamble and win money. So my thing is when I go to Vegas with my husband, my problem is every time I win, I want to walk every time. That's not a problem, actually. That's actually smart. But I'll win $5 and I'll be like, I won, I'm done, I'm ready, I, you know, we can go, like I just, so that, that's my, that, that's where even my, with my addictive personality. So I'm very excited to pick your brain about gambling addiction, overcoming it, what that looks like. How long has it been since you last gambled? Great question. Uh, I will have my 15th anniversary for my last, uh, in June June 15th. So it's 15 years, June 15th, about a month away. Amazing. And so do, so you count it from the last bet? Correct. Okay. And well, how do you define, I know you've struggled with drugs and alcohol. Not alcohol. Not alcohol, with drugs. Okay. So do you have a recovery there? Like how do you define your recovery? You know, I mean, look, in the recovery space, everybody likes to use their date and like it's a big to do and everything. But let's be honest, it's another day in our life. Um, it might be monumental. It might have been like a date where it was the last time we did something that we were able to overcome. So we want to celebrate that. And I can certainly appreciate that. However, gam- besides gambling, gambling is the only thing I have a date attached to. 
Got it. Okay. Because okay. For me, gambling started at 11 years old and was with me for 20 years on almost a daily basis. Yeah, from 11 on. Um, and so that was a true addiction like no other. And even Hard though the wired. Hardwired, and even though the drugs uh, were were a different addiction, right? The only thing I could really compare to it was Adderall, because Adderall, unlike the other drugs, where I would be a weekend partier, I could compartmentalize those drugs. I could not do that with gambling, and when I was on Adderall, I could not do that with Adderall either. It was an everyday obsession. Where if I did not gamble, if I did not research gambling, if I did not take an Adderall physically, I wouldn't feel right in both of those circumstances. And mentally, I would be all over the place. Right. It's that it's the power of, you know, the reptilian brain, that part of our brain that controls all our autonomic functions. It it is it controls that. So where where did you grow up? I grew up in Park Ridge, New Jersey, northern northern New Jersey. Right outside, probably a forty-minute drive outside New York City. Okay, and what was what was your childhood like? I was the I was the father. I was the son of an entrepreneur. I hope I wasn't the father. Uh, (laughs) I was the son of plot twist. Yeah, exactly. I was the son of an entrepreneur. I grew up working in my father's warehouse. All the guys in there gambled. You know, they would take me to the Meadowlands racetrack, which was a thirty-minute shot right down Route 17, where my father's store was in Paramus, New Jersey. And those early teenage years, I was always chasing the high that led, that really set the groundwork for my entire life. And growing up, I knew two things. I knew that I loved gambling and that I wanted to be an entrepreneur like my dad. You know, little did I realize that years later in college, I would fulfill that desire to become that entrepreneur. I just never imagined in my wildest dreams it would be as a bookie and a drug dealer. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You, you didn't get, when you had those dreams, you weren't specific enough about no, what, what you wanted. I wasn't envisioning. I was yeah. watching too much Godfather and Scarface and wasn't really, uh, and Sopranos, because I'm from New Jersey, of course, Right. So the Sopranos was a big deal, but that was later, later in life. But yeah, watching too many of those shows. So I've heard people say you only have a gambling problem if you're losing. What do you think about that? I think that's crock of shit. Uh, <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh, you know, that that's like saying, you know, you only have an alcohol problem if you get a DUI. Right, right. It's, it's absurd, you know? It is absurd. Uh, I mean, addiction is an addiction and people who want, people say that who want to deny that they actually have a problem. So they say that because I would say the same thing. If people had told me I had a gambling problem, I told them they're out of their mind. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, I I just enjoy it. I don't have a problem. Uh, So it starts off with little, little bet, you know, or watching people make bets, right? No, I gamble right away. At 11 years old. you You had money. Well, here's the deal. Okay. I'm 11. I'm walking in to my grandma Agnes's, God bless her soul, her house for Thanksgiving weekend in Massachusetts that we did every year around Thanksgiving. 
you know, you smell the turkey cooking, you know, you got the marshmallow covered yams, you know, the the uh, delicious stuffing mashed potatoes, all of it. Right. And everybody's eating. And I'm just watching my uncle who's glued to the television, watching football games and cheering exorbitantly while everybody's in a different side of the house. And I like sit next to my uncle who I, I thought he was the cool uncle. And, you know, I want to know why he's so excited about these games. And he takes out this sheet of, of games with lines on it, okay? So you have your favorites and your underdogs and the spread. When I say lines, I mean the spread. So the spread of the game could be three points, four points, five points. And he shows me that he circled four games and he bet $10.00. And if he wins, this is the fourth game. He won the first three. And if he wins it, he gets $100 back. And from that moment, I was hooked. And I said, can I have one of those? And he said, yeah, you need $10. So I ran over to my mom and I asked her for $10. And she said no. And I went to my dad and asked him for $10 and said, I'm hanging out with Uncle Joel after. We're going to go buy hoagies. That's what they call them up in Massachusetts. You know, the big sandwiches with a lot of meat on them. They're hoagies. Or the meatball sandwich with the with the just the, the, the sauce food out of it. Oh my god, I love those sandwiches. And uh, so he gave me ten dollars, and um, and then I, I bet on four games. And over the next two days, I won all four games. And the first bet I made at eleven years old, I won, and that started that twenty years. So I wasn't, you know, I was watching my uncle per se. And, you know, he introduced me to it and it just excited me. And um, I, I, it was just that competitive spirit I had. And I just loved the rush and I loved, you know, the chase for money at such an early age. And that just continued more and more and more and more and more. And throughout this, I was always a hard worker because all I knew about my father is he was the first one in the office and the last one out of the office. And he wasn't around a lot for, for me in different extracurricular activities as I was in high school and everything, but he worked his ass off. So I followed him and I, I really worked, worked very hard and became a really good salesperson like he was. And so uh, throughout all of these other addictions, I was addicted to the chase of money as well, which kind of leads me to the Right. So that was going to be my next question. What was your dad's relationship with money? What, like tr his feelings, what, what did he, when you, when he talked to you about money as a kid? So he didn't, I mean, he's very frugal. He's very conservative with his money. He's like the exact opposite of me. I don't know if he was always like that. I should actually, I don't think he was always like that. I know like in the seventies, he had a cafeteria. It was in a totally different business in Texas and that kind of went belly up. But, um, but he's very conservative and I would throw money around a lot because I had a good amount of it because I was earning a lot of money because I was a hardcore salesperson. I went door to door in, I went door to door selling home improvements in college in Northeast Baltimore, Southwest DC, some of the toughest areas. I mean, I remember walking down the street in Southwest Baltimore with a window, right? Knocking on people's doors and being called the white devil. <laughs> oh dear. Cause I was only the white, I was the only white person in that neighborhood. Right? Oh yeah, you were. And they think I'm trying to scam them and, you know, um, you know, giving them my spiel and everything like that. And, uh, 
you know, at the end of the day, it turns out um, I didn't know any better. I was in college. I just want to make money. Uh, I kind of was. It, it kind of was a scam, the whole thing. Uh, but I didn't know that and I didn't know any better. But anyway, um, you know, I was knocking on these doors and had some very interesting experiences there. And, you know, if you can sell anything door to door, then you can sell anything anywhere. And that's when I knew when I was successful in that, I got a raise in that. I started becoming a manager there. That's when I knew sales was my path. Right. So were there times when, I mean, I'm sure there were times where you didn't have money, where you, you know, didn't have enough. Like, what did you feel about yourself without the things? So you, you, your identities were around being a salesman, being a hard worker, dad being an entrepreneur, you being an entrepreneur, making money when you didn't have those and partying, right. Being if the fun. Okay. So when you didn't have those things, what was left? Well, I, I, oh, I had them at an early age, so it, well, I wasn't even in, I mean, now I don't have any of that. I don't do any of that stuff. So it's different, different now, but back then it was all about like when I went into college, I started selling. So, you know, I got in, my roommate got shot with a 357 Magnum by his ex-girlfriend. What'd he do? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, I think he cheated on her. And, and and it blew out his tricep, and oh. they had to actually do surgery to cut like they to cut arteries. I, I shouldn't say arteries to cut some some something out of his like his calf and stuff to give him you know mobility in his tricep and his fingers uh, and the nerves and everything. So I remember that, and I remember coming back from. Um, spring break and he had all these drugs and he just like, you should try this and you should try this. And I did, I tried everything. I was very uh, interested in all of that. And then I got hooked and then I started dealing drugs. So, uh, you know, I, I was working in home improvement. So I had a bunch of money, you know, I had money coming in, which I would gamble of course. And then I had a lot of credit cards. So when I needed to, I would pull money off the of credit cards to pay debts, and then I would work to pay off the credit cards. And so I would just be moving money all around. So I had access to a lot of availability of money, even if it wasn't really mine. I would move it around and everything, and I would always pay things back because I was doing relatively well. Uh, and then I started selling drugs. So, I mean, I was literally moving massive amounts of drugs at University of Maryland, where I went to college, I took a, a trip driving from the University of Maryland to the University of New Mexico, and I asked my father if I could borrow his Lincoln Continental. I mean, I'm like 20 years old driving a Lincoln, or 21 driving his Lincoln Continental, and I picked up 22 pounds of marijuana at the University of New Mexico and drove it across the country back to the University of Maryland, and. You know, as a business, I looked at it as a business deal. I could get it $300 a pound in New Mexico and sell it for $800 a pound in Maryland. So I make $500 a pound. You know, either you talk a 20 pounds, you talk a $10,000. I mean, a college kid getting 10 grand, that's a lot of money. So it's a lot of money in general, but especially if you're in college. And this is 20 years ago. So uh, not to date myself, but... Uh, <laughs> So I, when I made that money, I took th two friends down to Atlantic City with the 10 grand. And in three days, we gambled it all away and spent it all on girls and gambling. 
and booze and partying. Three days, it was gone. Was it worth it? I mean, it's a great story, but no, I mean, was it worth it? It was foolish behavior because I got away with so much that I wasn't caught for any of my unruly, unlawful behavior until later in life when it caught up to me. What was some of your what were some of your craziest bets or craziest stories from those days? I mean, what comes to mind is going uh, every year we would fly from New York, New Jersey to Las Vegas for the NCAA uh, tournament. If anybody knows anything about, you know, gambling in general, the NCAA basketball tournament happens every year and is the largest sports gambling event of every single year. Las Vegas makes so much money during these weekends because they're just back-to-back-to-back-to-back games, 64 teams playing in this tournament. I'm sure you're familiar with March Madness. That's what it all is. On the way to an epic four-day weekend, we would gamble on the airplane because we couldn't, I couldn't stop. I gambled everywhere. And we would play something that you call liar's poker. So liar's poker is if you take out a $10 bill or any type, any dollar bill, but let's just use $10 for an example. There's serial numbers on every bill and on the $10 bill. So I would have a $10 bill and the person I was betting against would have a $10 bill. And you would have to gamble on the numbers um, the total amount of a particular number on each bill combined. So I would start and I would say three, three eighths. And on both of our bills, there would have to be three or more eights, right? But I wouldn't see the other person's bill, of course. And then they would come back and they would have to up that. So they would say four twos. Then I would say four fives. And they would say four nines. And then I would call bullshit. And if there weren't a combined four nines, I would win if there was less. If there was more, the other person would win. And if it was exactly on the nose, you would have to pay double. (laughs) Oh, wow. How long was the flight? (laughs) The flight's five hours. So or four and a half hours or whatever. So one of the flights, I had lost $1,500 before I even got to Las Vegas. So, I mean, I'm in my 20s. Like, that's a lot of money for me. And I was miserable as hell, you know, after landing, starting a four-day weekend. So that would immediately go to, you know, I got to get high. I got, you know, and, and you know, I can't deal with it, deal with even think about that or even think about it, blah, blah, blah. But I've already, uh, like, 1500 I allotted myself, like, 2000 for the whole weekend, and 1500 has gone already. So th- those were some of the out of control. And then I would, like, just stay up for days uh, doing coke and gambling in Las Vegas for, like, three, four days straight and, like, be absolutely mortified with myself and want to, like, be on the verge of committing suicide. And then what would bring you back? Why would you commit suicide? Um, I think uh, just getting out of that drug-induced state uh, and then sitting in the sitting in the depression of it and just, um, uh, you know, I don't really know why I never committed suicide, but I was very close to it. Yeah. So you're selling drugs and did you graduate college? Four years. Yeah. I kept it all together. Nobody really... Well, in college, I was a different human than I 
am now. And then it was after, I mean, I had hair down to my shoulders, three earrings in my left ear. I was doing steroids. I was all jacked up. I mean, I had a major anger issues, <laughs> mostly because it's probably the steroids uh, and the other drugs. So, yeah, from that perspective, I, you know, for that perspective, I, I was kind of, uh, you, you knew something, I was kind of unruly, let's put it that way. But afterwards, like I led a double life. Nobody really knew I had all these issues going on. My friend, I gambled with my friends. They would not talk to my friends about gambling, but you know, I'd be out partying and I'd have games be, that I bet on and I'm checking my phone all the time everywhere I am. Right. How did you, how did that work in romantic relationships? Oh, uh, my romantic relationship was, was with gambling. Right. Right, and you I never had relationships, but I mean, I wasn't present mentally. I was there physically. I wasn't present mentally, so that's why you know. And the girls I would date back then were into the drug scene like I was, so we would relate around that. They can't, they couldn't relate to the gambling, but they, you know, they didn't care. <laughs> you know, we were we were just part. We were partying. We'd have a good time together, and that that was the extent of it. So it must have felt. Uh, to me, the 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 allure feels like, I mean, going to Vegas, gambling, strippers, money, like that sounds like drugs. That sounds like an amazing weekend to me, right? It's very like, you know, sign me up. That's that's glamorous, right? But it what you're saying is that the experience itself, those experiences did not make you feel like it didn't work. It didn't fill whatever void. It didn't it didn't end well. It wasn't a uh, a fulfilling experience. Well, at the end of the day, you're you're alone. You're left alone in a room, feeling soulless, feeling empty, feeling lonely, feeling depressed, feeling confused, and none of those are good feelings. No, and and those feelings lead to depression, and then eventually thoughts of suicide. And that's what they left at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, it does sound great if you did it once in your life. Mm-hmm, right. It, that's it, so true. It, it's not great when you do it all the time. Cause I would go back to New York city in my twenties. I'd go back to New York city. I'd still party. I'd still be gambling. I'd still be at the strip clubs. I'd still be doing all that stuff. So it wasn't like an anomaly. It was like an every weekend thing. That's such a great point. That's such a great point. It it truly is. It truly is the difference between uh, addiction and partying, which is, you know, something that is glamorous and wild and out of control and and whatever rebellious, whatever you want to call it, uh, sinful, indulgent. You do it one weekend, right? You do it one week, whatever. That that is a totally different experience than when you're doing it every weekend. You're totally right because it loses all of its. I remember I, I, I've been in Vegas, you know, loaded before, and it's like there's ju- it just is so bad. It's so grimy, and you just something for me. My experience being loaded in that city was like I just couldn't get out. Like I could not get out of that city. Yeah, I mean, I the ironic thing is when I got sober from gambling, we'll call it. You know, it's weird to say that, but when I got when I stopped gambling, whatever. Um, it took me five years until I could go back to Vegas. I was doing business with companies in Vegas. See, I started later in life. I, I moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, and started a recruiting company. 
it was a technology recruiting company. And, you know, I was working with casinos in Vegas. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, Obviously, you know it. Yeah. Duh. So I mean, you got to use what you know. I love it. Because um, and then I was staffing software engineers to uh, to companies who who manufacture slot machines, and I would go down every year. I'd go to the uh, all of the conventions and all of that. And I tell you, Vegas is a completely. So it took me five years to go back there. And when I went back there and, you know, um, I had to, I went to a casino that didn't have gambling. It was Trump, Trump's casino down there. It's not even a casino. It's a hotel, but it's like one of the only hotels that doesn't have a casino in it. So you can stay away from having to walk through the casino. Cause at that point I couldn't do it. That's in- I Yeah. So I would go down there. Eventually I was able to do it because like the thought of gambling to me disgusts me. Like it, it, it's, it's like, I can now actually, I mean, I don't do this, but my father used to tell me a, a story because my dad had a past in gambling also. So um, my father used to tell me he would go into the casinos and just watch people lose. And that's how he stopped gambling. So I, 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 I can't, I couldn't do that, but I, I do remember like only a few years ago and I'm almost 15 years clean I was down there maybe three years ago, and my friends were ga- for a bachelor party or something. My my friends were gambling at a blackjack table, and I stood there. And after ten minutes, I felt completely uncomfortable that I didn't trust myself, because in the wrong situation, under the right set of circumstances, I still don't trust myself. So I uh, I left. I'm like, guys, I'll, I'll, I gotta go. I can't sit here and stare at you gambling because I would want to sit down and start gambling. So uh, I left. Um, but uh, generally, I, I try to stay away. But it is interesting now that I'm not drinking either and I'm not doing drugs. Going down there, there's actually a lot of other things to do in Vegas than the first hookers gambling and drugs. There is a lot of other things that game offers you, and you can start um, appreciating those things a little bit more. Totally. It's funny going to going to Vegas sober and also a lot older, married, kids. It's a, just a, a totally different experience. And of course, I see the girls, you know, in the dresses, carrying their shoes. And after the club, like I remember the whole thing. Right. And and I look at the, and, and I'm coming from a show or <laughs> dinner or whatever. And I laugh like, oh, how different things can be. It's better on our. It's better on this side, I tell you. I mean, I, you know, obviously, when you're in your twenties, you go have fun. But like the, you do it once a year, then it's it's cool. Right. It's fun. But, no, it's you know, you're so right. You're so no, right. It's the, the overdoing it. Yeah, well, or the repetition of it. Mm-hmm. That's what so, defines addiction. You know, when yes. you have to do it every single weekend or every single day or every single moment you're thinking about it, that defines the addiction. Absolutely. So. How did you uh, talk to me about your, you know, quote unquote, bottom, your turning point, finding gambling anonymous, uh, gamblers anonymous, excuse me. And like what led up to that? Yeah. So it's an interesting story, not a typical story. I was driving back up to uh, Massachusetts for Thanksgiving with my brother, just me and him. Our parents were in a separate car. I remember it clear as day. It was an early Saturday morning at like 10 a.m. I was sitting next to him in the car. He put music on. I turned it to sports radio. He objected, and we started an argument. 
And he told me that he could not listen to sports radio anymore because he went and was going to Gamblers Anonymous. And uh, we always gambled together uh, or talked about gambling all the time. And, you know, I kind of made fun of him. Like, what do you mean you're going to Gamblers Anonymous? Like, what, what the hell's wrong with you? I mean, you know, there are a bunch of degenerate losers in there. You're not a degenerate loser. You're 20 years old, you know, 22 years old. I mean, you got to, you know, you're making good money, you know, you know you're going to and um, he's just like, no, I'm done gambling and, uh, you know, I can't listen to this and um, we're listening to music. And so I gave in and we listened to music. And for that three and a half hour drive, it was the most soothing, mind calming drive that I had been on up to that point in my life. Because I would always listen to like, no, I need to know what's going on with the injuries of the game, with like uh, the line of the game, has it moved? Who's everybody betting on? I need to prepare. There's a game on later in the day. And so my mind was always racing with those thoughts. But just listening to music up there after the three and a half hour ride, I was like, wow, that was so soothing. And it, it sparked a curiosity in me to find out what did this Gamblers Anonymous do to my brother? I want my brother back. Like that was my thought process at the time. So he didn't push it on me or suggest it or anything. I said, you know what? I want to go check out a meeting. I'm going to go next week. And, I, and that's what led me to my first meeting. And I went to that meeting and I felt within the first hour, I looked around the room, I scanned the room and I saw about 30 to 40 people. And they all looked like degenerate losers to me. And after an hour and a half of listening to everybody's story, I recognized that I had more in common with all of those people than I did with my very closest friends. And I recognized that that was actually the place for me. And I got a sponsor and I worked the steps and I never gambled again. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. It's amazing. It, it's it's unusual for people to go to their first meeting, particularly under the circumstances where you're trying to figure, you know, you're not like, oh, I need help and look for the similarities, right? People go to meetings and they look for the differences all the time, particularly when they're going, you know, oh, I want to see what's up with this. These, what did they do to my brother? And yeah, you look yeah. for the reasons not to be there versus the reasons to be there. Right. Right. And so those degenerates became your people. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy how that happens. Well, um, I was one of them. Just because right. I was in my 20s making six figures in a suit didn't mean shit. Right. That's the confusing part. I remember going into, I remember going into like low, low bottom meetings where people were talking about, sh you know, shooting heroin and they looked like degenerates and they, they described my story. They just were further along in it. You know, they, they were, they were shooting, they, they had shot all the money away. You know, I still had some left. That was the only difference between us. I was doing all the same things and, you know, they were older. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was, it's quite the eye opener. So what were some of the things that you did early on in Gamblers Anonymous to, I only know it as it relates to drugs and alcohol or, or, you know, relationships, things like that. You know, I didn't go into a bar for a while unless I had a good reason to be there. I didn't, you know, there were certain things that I did in early sobriety, kind of like you're talking about not going to Vegas for five years. What were some of the things, because I would suspect that a, a any sporting event would be tr triggering in the beginning. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you've been in the program, so you know. And for anybody listening to this, it's people, places, and things. You have to change the people that you hang around with. You have to stop going to the places that you've been frequenting. And you have to stop doing the things that you were doing. And so I did that in a variety of ways. I eased up on hanging out with the same, quote unquote, friends of mine that I gambled with all the time. Because 95% of them, when I stopped gambling, went away. They weren't friends. There were 5% that I was friends with before I gambled and I grew up with and I'm still friends with, right? But 95% went away. Like I would stop going to the places I went, to the bars every weekend to watch the games I wouldn't go, to Las Vegas, to Atlantic City, to the horse track, to the weekly card games, to all of these things that I would participate in every single week, I stopped doing. And the things I put on a technology called Gamblock on my computer. And Gamblock will shut down any application that is related to gambling or sports-related. It will shut it down when you try to open it up. So it served as a roadblock for me. I love so that. I had to put roadblocks in place. This was one of the roadblocks. The other roadblock was I called the casinos because I didn't trust myself, and I told them not to ever give me any credit line or anything and not to allow me in if they saw me there. And if you call them, they won't give you credit if you ask them not to prior. So these are the things that I put in place to uh, as roadblocks, and I had a sponsor that I would rely on when I needed to. And that sponsor would call me consistently. What about those? Those are awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your beloved host. When I'm not hosting the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast, I'm running the recruiting department at Lion Rock Recovery. We are always looking for amazing licensed mental health counselors, along with various other sales and operations positions that pop up from time to time. The Lion Rock culture is one of collaboration, support, and flexibility. Our employees work from home offices all over the country, utilizing technology to connect to one another. We are always hiring. So if you want to have the best job ever, check out our open positions and apply at www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash about backslash careers. What about those things where I found that some of the obvious things in my recovery were easier, like don't go to the bar, uh, don't hang out with your drug dealer. But there were things that happened where it was like, I mean, I had a weird, this is just a weird one. I went to school abroad and one of the field trips was when like the school field trip was to a winery (laughs) and I found myself at 20, you know, in a winery and it's it's, situations where like, I can imagine you're the one I think of is you're in a restaurant with some, but with friends or whatever. And there's those big TVs and there's a game on, or you go, or your family, uh, you know, you go home and there's a game on, or like, what were some of the things you didn't expect that you had to adjust for? Well, it was more like when my friends who I still hung out with would talk about the lines of a game then that would get too into the, like, I would be like, the one to listen. 
Yeah, yeah. I would like if I started listening and then I referenced the game they were talking about that was on at the restaurant, then I'm getting way too close to what's going on. So I would walk away. But the game being on was okay. I mean, it was fine because I wasn't like, I didn't know what the line was. I didn't really care. I I wasn't voting for anybody. You know, it was all about the line and knowing what the line is and what their money chips and all that other stuff. But at the same time, one of the other things I had to stop doing, which I I failed to mention, was uh, fantasy football and fantasy sports because fantasy is huge. Everybody plays fantasy. People who don't gamble, like, play fantasy. And, like, then you have that whole group of other people that tell you, well, fantasy isn't gambling. (laughs) Yes, it is. I'm sorry to tell you. Yes, it is. Okay. Um, anything that you are risking, that any game of chance that you are risking any amount of money where the outcome is uncertain is gambling. Okay, great. So that leads us to the next piece, right? So I'm an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur, right? And I mean, we made some in, in our business, we made some, took some big risks. That's what entrepreneurs do. Tell me about you, you got clean and you started this recruiting company that's a that's a gamble right like so how how in the entrepreneur world and and using like how do you measure risk i guess is the question oh how do you measure risk i mean right like I'm a, a risk, risk that's too big yeah, yeah yeah i get it i'm a risk taker in general but when you say starting a business is gambling you know, I don't look at it that way, but if if I reframed it that way, I would say, okay, I could agree with that, but it's a gamble on myself. And none of those other things I was gambling on were investing in myself. I look at more as it's an investment in myself. It's not really a gamble. And when, I love that. Yeah. when I'm investing in myself, or as you would say, gambling in yourself, it's a different point because I'm in control. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah. No, that makes total sense to me. Yeah. So that's how I uh, that's how I look at it. And I've always been able to generate money because I'm a very good salesperson. So I, I never like it's not risk to me. It's just that's just what I do. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So you started this company, you moved to Salt Lake City, started this company. It's doing well. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I shifted addictions. You know, I, I went to um, Salt Lake City. Actually, I remember clear as day, the second day, I looked up where is the Gamblers Anonymous meeting, the first thing I did when I got there. I was about a year sober at that point, uh, two years sober at that point when I moved there. So I wanted to know where's the Gamblers Anonymous meeting. I was coming from a room of 40 people every week. And it was at the VA, and I didn't have a car yet. And so I got a cab. Didn't even have Lyft and Uber. I got a yellow cab. It was driving me around like in a new city where dropping me at the VA because that's where the meeting was. And I walked in and there were five people sitting there. And I was like, what the hell is this? I'm used to a 40 person meeting and that is five people. And that was the extent of the meeting in Utah. And there was only one meeting. It's so sad. in the whole state, the whole state was one Gamblers Anonymous meeting. And there was only five people there. So people either didn't know about Gamblers Anonymous, like they hadn't had that. And, and, you know, you can't can't gamble in Utah. It's illegal. There's no legal gambling in Utah. But 
You could drive right down to Las Vegas. You can go to St. George, and it's right across from Vegas, and you could gamble there, and they, right across from Nevada, and you could gamble there. So gambling was very close. You could drive. People would drive to Idaho to play the lottery. So and, and when uh, when you have online gambling, you could do it from the seat of your couch. So you could do it anywhere. So even though technically it's a it's a clean state, right? And there's no gambling there. You can gamble anywhere in the world, anywhere. It's not like drugs where you have to go find a drug dealer. Right. Gambling, as long as you have a computer or a phone with internet, you can gamble. But don't you need money? I mean, yeah, you need, well, you need credit. You need credit. Okay. You don't really need, I mean, you know, if you have a credit card, you can gamble. So yes, technically you need money or you need access to credit. If you're doing online gambling, it's got to be credit or you deposit money in an account. But, you know, I had accumulated a bunch of credit at that point. You know, I, I got credit cards from an early age. So I started early and I actually charge everything in my life because it's free money. I don't like understand people who pay with cash because they are giving up points that can get them free flights, that can get them all these free things. And uh, but whatever. So I always use gamble. Uh, uh, I always use credit, and I also needed access to cash because when I became a bookie, if I was ever short, I would need to pull down credit. I would need to pull off money from a credit line so I could pay people off. Right. Right. Okay. So you go to this five-person meeting, and but you still decided to stay in Salt Lake. Well, I had started a business. So, you know, I already had business stuff going on. I started from New York. We had this huge client, uh, E-Trade Financial, and that's what started me out there. And so we already had a client, me and my ex-business partner, and then we started building it from there. So I went into this meeting. It was a whack meeting. And, you know, I was like... Um, you know, let me lead the meetings. So I started leading the meetings and I led the meetings there for five years. And we built a, you know, a good 15 person meeting for a while. And then I kind of fell out of it. But um, for a good five years, I went every week. I led the meetings every week and um, worked the program, worked the steps multiple times. But the first year, year and a half, I didn't work anything. I just didn't gamble. So, yeah, so I stayed in, in, in Utah, I was building my business and, you know, going to the bars because um, I was trying to meet, I was single, trying to meet women, trying to whatever, became friends with a bunch of these guys. They introduced me to Adderall. I didn't know what Adderall was before that. I knew what Ritalin was. I that dabbled in Ritalin, but not Adderall. And um, they told me how to get it from the doctor. So I went to the doctor and I made up some bullshit story and I bought it and they gave me a prescription. And, Adderall was just, uh, I just got hooked to it like this. I mean, it's like um, cocaine in a pill, basically. And, uh, you know, I do have ADD. I do have ADHD, however you want to. So for me, it was like, well, you know, this is helping me. And, uh, you know, I get distracted very easily. And it really controlled my emotional level, Adderall. And uh, I was hooked quickly. And then I was introduced to GHB. And that's a complete opposite drug. Um, that that like um, it is originated, I believe, from the bodybuilding industry. It allows them to it basically has no alcohol in it, but it gives you the effects of like you're drunk and wasted. So bodybuilders could take it and get that feeling and it wouldn't 
like uh, uh, add calories to the diet or anything like that. However, it is also known more in the mainstream world as the date rape drug, which obviously is a horrible thing to be attached to a drug you're addicted to because people think you, you're yeah. using it for other reasons. So I would take, yeah, I mean, I would take it with my boys uh, on the weekends. And it was just another party party drug that we would use. And you could also have sex for hours on it, not stop. So I was addicted to Adderall and I was addicted to GHB. And I was smoking weed every night to boot. I had stopped the cocaine use, though. I was done with cocaine. I hated it. And I had kind of stopped doing all that. Okay. And how, what happened with the business that, and, and, uh, as that progressed? So as that progressed, um, business kept growing. We grew it to, we were doing about five and a half million a year in revenue. Me and my business partner started having different visions. I ended up buying her out. And then six months later, we got into a lawsuit over the buy agreement that I felt she violated. And she basically stole a bunch of my employees. And, uh, in my view, and, um, I had paid her a million dollars for the company and I owed her 350,000 more. I had to borrow, you know, I had about half of that million that I'd saved up over 10 years of working and um, I had to borrow the rest. And then the 350, um, those payments I owed her after. And when she was violating the agreement, I sent a letter that we're going to do an internal investigation and she sued me. So that started a lawsuit that lasted six years that was fueled by the Adderall, fueled by my emotional decision-making and the trauma that I still had in the with the chaos in my life that I hadn't really worked on myself. Yeah, I might have gotten sober and worked the steps, but truly worked on myself beyond that. No, I hadn't done anything. I would just go from one thing to another to another to another. You know, in that same time, I was very busy and very involved all the time. And I still am. It's like one of the things. I'm just always involved in a lot of things. And so I was actually running marathons at the time and raising money for Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and doing drugs and running a business. And just like I just was an address like I was just doing doing so working on myself. There wasn't time to sit with myself to like journal to like um, do think about mindset stuff, to do any of that. And that stuff was just kind of starting back then. So um, I ended up in a place where I continued to kind of destroy internally my soul. And I made a lot of bad decisions um, that were emotional. And she did as well in this legal battle. And um Basically, though, it was like Groundhog Day. I mean, I was a jerk as a boss. I was an asshole to my employees. Excuse the French. That is a French word. I don't know if you're familiar. Uh, but I was a jerk because I was so worried about closing every deal because I had a million dollars in legal bills piling up that I was trying to hide from my employees. So all this was going on, and uh, I would go home and self-medicate. And I would smoke every night and I would eat a pound of sushi and I would watch horrible reality television for two hours every night. The real crime. And isolate myself and become very depressed. 
And along that time, uh, you know, my partying uh, got out of control. I got arrested. I got a, I got arrested twice. Once was uh, the last trip I had taken to Vegas. It was, uh, uh, and I got arrested for possession of GHB. And actually, they caught, they charged me with distribution because I had in a little five hour energy. But when you take the liquid and you transfer it to what it would be in the actual weight, it's a huge amount. A small amount of liquid is a huge. So they charged me with a felony, which I pled down to misdemeanors. And then a couple of years later, I got caught for a DUI. And it was really, I mean, I was, it, <laughs> I had come from, you can't make this shit up. I had come from a Christmas party at my lawyer's. <laughs> and five glasses of wine later, I'm arrested and in jail. So the ironic thing is nobody knew about either of those arrests because I bailed myself out. And thank God, you know, I wasn't posted. My mugshot wasn't posted on the Internet. I was checking every day because I was like, I'm going to be screwed. I'm a CEO. All my employees in Utah, conservative Utah, will be like, you know, who are we working for if they ever found any of this stuff out? So I lost my license and I just made some bullshit up to them. And I told them, yeah, I, uh, you know, my Audi is out for six months. I ordered a part. It's in Germany and it's not coming for six months. So I don't have a car for six months. So can you guys drive to the meetings? Well, and they believe me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Why, why wouldn't they, the, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So how did you meet the business partner? How did, how did that was that from New York? Yeah, we had worked in New York City together for one year before 9-11. And then she went back to Utah and I stayed in New York and we stayed in touch. And I worked in New York for four more years. And then I landed this deal with E-Trade Finance. I was calling on E-Trade Financial and they said to me, uh, we don't have any new uh, work in New York and New Jersey. However, if you happen to know somebody in Sandy, Utah, we're trying to hire 200 full-time financial service representatives in the next three and a half weeks. And I was like, oh. I was like, hello. <laughs> so I called her up and I'm like, Hey, I'm putting a bid in on this project. Do you want to come in with me? And she's like, yeah. So we put a bid in and we won a bid. We didn't have a company at the time. I was doing this on the side. My company in New York didn't want any business outside of me. So that started the path to Utah. Because, yeah, it's such a random place. Like, why would you move to Salt Lake City, Utah? So that's kind of how it came about. Well, what's funny about that is, or, you know, you know, some synchronicity is that Utah is a non-gambling state. Yeah. But, you know, so the, I actually, when you first said that, I was like, oh, that's why he moved. That's how he picked Utah. So it's interesting. Oh, no. It's interesting that that was, you know, <laughs> the universe moving in mysterious ways. Okay, so this lawsuit was, would you, so, so it was revenge-ish? It was like... No, I, I, I didn't feel it, I, it was revenge. I feel like I was getting completely screwed over. She was having an affair. My ex-business partner was having an affair with my director in my India office. So we had offices in Utah, India, and New York, and Idaho for a time. And she was doing it behind, like, I didn't know about it which is fine because I don't need to know about a personal life. However, it's not fine when you negotiate a deal with somebody and then you inherit this guy as a director and he's having an affair with the person that hate you, you guys hate each other. So obviously he's not going to have a vested interest to work hard for me. I just paid a million dollars. It's a lot of money, which I had to borrow half of it. 
And so I was under a lot of stress. Like I had the company had to perform and here she is doing this behind my back. I never would have paid what I paid for it. But more importantly, the India office was a million dollar producing office and it started tanking within the first six months. And she was over there four times in six months. And she was married with two kids over here. So, but was, so I guess shifting like the lawsuit, you ended up having a million dollars in legal fees. I mean, did you come out of that situation ahead? Ahead in life. Okay. Okay. Fair. Because I have a lifetime of lessons that I learned throughout that situation that has allowed me to live a much healthier life, to understand the down and pitfalls of emotional decision-making, and to really understand what matters most in life. And it's not about how much money you have in your pocket. It's how and what you do with your time. Because you can earn, you can make millions, you can lose millions. But one thing you can't get back is the time that you've wasted on these things in your life, whether it's the addiction, whether it's the lawsuit, whether it's whatever it it was. So, no, I I went to trial. I was on the stand five times. Oh, wow. It was brutal. They, They destroyed my credibility. They tried to, all this stuff. The jury ruled. I actually, the case was over 350. The jury actually ruled in my favor that I only owed her 90K, but she was threatening to appeal which would last another one to two years. I was already six years in. My life was miserable at that point. I hated life. I felt stuck. I wanted out of the company. I hated the company um, that I built. (laughs) And so I ended up settling for the same 350 that I owed her six years prior, just a million dollars later and a million lessons later. Yeah. Thank God the million lessons. I mean, I, I I would say there are people who probably do things like that and don't pay attention, don't absorb the lessons. What so oh, that I could have easily fell back into addiction for sure. Right, um, right. But what I, what um, how, how what, what did I, you do? I sold the business and paid off the lawsuit and wrote a book. <laughs> That's what I did. How did you go from the drug addiction, the that this fueling the drug addiction to selling the business, learning all the, like absorbing these things. Like what was the transition there? Everything was a slow progression for me. Nothing was like on the same level. Like the, uh, um, the, the GHB I stopped doing because I got arrested for the second time while I was on this stuff. And so I just, I, I poured, I had like a two liters of it. Two liters of GHB, which would get me in jail for 10 years. And I dumped, it's like $2,000. I dumped $2,000 down the toilet. I remember to this day. It was a liberating feeling. The Adderall is a very interesting story because I, I can remember it as clear as day. I walked, I used to keep my Adderall in my front desk drawer, okay, in, in my office. I would walk into the office, open my drawer. There'd be an Adderall. I'd pop my Adderall off and running. I walked in one day, I pulled the drawer open, there was no Adderall left. And I started freaking out. And I called my doctor. It was like, they weren't even in yet. I left them a message like, hey, I need my Adderall prescription filled today. I am out and I, I, I got to have it or I can't function. They didn't call me back. 
I was every phone call that was coming in that day. I was like, is that the doctor? Is that the doctor? Then nine o'clock came and 10 o'clock came, 11 o'clock came. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm driving over there at lunchtime. And then 12 came in and I drove over to the doctor's office and there was a line of people and I sat in line and then I was like, hi, I'm Michael Dash. I called earlier. They're like, oh yeah, for the Adderall prescription. They're like, we got your message. What are you doing here? And I'm like, well, you didn't call me back. And they're like, well, look around. It's packed with people here. We haven't had an opportunity. We were going to give you a call back. The doctor can't see you for three days. Like he's jam-packed. So the earliest we could see you is four days from now. I'm like, look, I just need my prescription filled. I need it filled. I need it filled. No, I we can't fill it. And I went back into my car and I was dejected as could be. And I just sat there in silence and I was just like, you have an addiction. You are addicted to Adderall because I was in a panic in a state of flux thinking, who could I call for this Adderall? And then it was right there that I was like, you're in addiction again. And so I just went back to my office and I said, all right, I'll make the appointment for four days from now. I'm not going to do anything until then. And then over those three days, my employees started noticing changes in me and changes in how I was communicating with them, how I was leading them. This is just over a three day span. And how I was collaborating with them instead of talking down to them and telling them what they were doing wrong and what they needed to do right and all these things. And they asked me straight up, they're like, are you okay? Like, is something wrong with you? And I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, no, you just seem so much more calm and so much more level-headed and all these things. And I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm done with the Adderall. And that's when I quit. And I haven't done Adderall since. That was like like two years ago. That's awesome. And so it's interesting. My addiction journey, each has a story tied to it that doesn't relate to the typical person's uh, addiction where they hit rock bottom. My my stories are a little different because you would think like, um, yeah, you would think different things that happened to me would be my rock bottom, but they weren't. I had to learn a little bit more before uh, it actually happened. I very much relate to that. <laughs> so tell me about now and moving through. So you you quit Adderall and then you talk about like finding this inner peace and doing this inner work and trauma work. You went to Bali. What happened? Yeah. So I went, I took a trip to Bali. I was still in all of this really, um, not the gambling, but the other stuff. And I went to Bali and say three and a three years ago, three and a half years ago. And it was a retreat called Unconventional Life. There were two people there speaking in one of the sessions about living in a state of flow by following a a process of making decisions by following your intuitive guide and your intuition, not your conscious mindset. And this was all new to me. This is some shishi nonsense. Like I'm from back east. I don't believe in this crap. But I challenged them. And, you know, the whole premise of it is that if it's not a hell yes in your life, then it should be a no in everything that you do. And I just didn't approach life like that. I would always be convinced to do things that I was like, eh, I don't really want to go. But uh, all right, you can convince me to go. Fine, I'll go. And I would have an eh time. I wouldn't have a great time regardless of what it was. Could be go out drinking, go out, you know, um, to the club, you know, whatever. Go to somebody's house. I was always convinced into doing things. They weren't a hell yes for me, but that's how I lived my life at the time. 
And, um, you know, again, I thought they were full of shit, but they explained this whole process they went through. And I was in so much internal pain, misery, agony, frustration, all of it with the lawsuit, with the Adderall, with the GHB, with the marijuana, with the eating, with the TV, with everything. I was keeping it all inside. I didn't talk to anybody about any of this stuff. And it was because I wasn't going to GA at this time either. I kind of like, right. My, you know, so I had no, I didn't talk to anybody about it. So I was like tearing it up inside. I was t- torn up and miserable. I, I wanted to cry, but didn't know how to. And so this flow thing, I decided on my trip back from Bali to New York to uh, Salt Lake City, I kept saying to myself, would it be so bad to live a different way? And I just kept repeating that to myself. And when I started really letting that sit with me, I thought a smile came on my face and I thought, oh, my God, that feels so liberating. And so I, for the first time in my life, I said, I'm going to go ahead and take this course. It's something completely new to me. They're offering this 10-week course. Uh, it was like $1,200. I'm going to put my my, my uh, normal thought of like they're scamming me out of $1,200 aside. I'm not going to judge anything, and I'm just going to do what they say. And they took you through a process of clearing out your limiting beliefs through tapping and EMDR. Yes, yes. And, and I started doing these things that I thought were totally weird. Super and weird. They're super f- weird. Like, but, they, and, but they do what they say they do, which is even which makes it even scarier because you're like, oh, my God, it, it, I, I don't know what's happening. Oh, they, 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 they were working. And more than that, you know, they talked about all these synchronicities that you could see in life and, you know, that you could manifest your future and all this shit. And like, I didn't, again, I didn't believe in that, uh, you know, back East, it was like synchronicity. What are you talking about? I'm like, if you work hard, good shit happens. Mm-hmm. It's, and then, then when they were talking about synchronicity, like man, when you talk about manifestation, then when they talk about synchronicity, I would say, look, it's called coincidence. These <laughs> things happen in life. There's no such thing as synchronicity. Give me a break. Right. So I had an answer for everything. My answers were incorrect, though. <laughs> they were my answers came from a small, short sighted mindset that I had been living with and carrying all my life. But I started to expand it. And I did this course. And this course started shifting the dynamic of my thought process and eventually allowed me to be in a position to say, the lawsuit, when you're dead and buried, nobody's going to give a shit if you won or lost this lawsuit. So get it out of your life. And I eventually was able to get to that point because of the practice I was doing in this flow group. And it's if, if anybody's interested, it's flowconsciousnessinstitute.com. Jackie and Justin um, uh, run it. You can get in touch with me. I'm glad to give you an intro. It is a life changer. I love it. That's amazing. And and so now you're doing executive coaching. Tell me about what you're doing right now. Yeah. So now I am an executive coach to entrepreneurs, uh, usually that are in the one to five million dollar range. I help them uh, take a top down approach, look at their org charts, make sure they're in line, that people are in their lanes. They have the right roles and responsibilities, that departments are communicating effectively, documentation is in place, all that jazz, and help them double their profits. But I also work one-on-one with entrepreneurs, business leaders who are dealing with isolation, and I help take them 
through this four-step process I built to connection, starting with self-recognition and uh, taking them through to actionable tasks and getting them reconnected with themselves, with their family, with their employees, and with their mission. And when did you start doing that? Uh, Over the past year. How's that been going? It's going well. You know, I'm involved in a lot of, uh, of different things. I do a lot in the philanthropic community. Also, I have a nonprofit. I also created an alignment assessment that helps people align their daily activities with their mission and goals in life. I'm actually giving a talk in a week and a half at an all-female event where I am the only male speaking or attending, which is going to be interesting. My mother would be so proud. <laughs> and uh, um, and uh, I'm going to present the alignment assessment to, to this group. But basically, uh, I have uh, – and anybody who's interested, I can leave the uh, information for Yeah, them. definitely. It's a tool that allows you to track your activities over a 24-hour period of time and consciously look at what you are spending time on and then to rate them on a scale of 1 to 10, give yourself an average alignment score, and then reassess the, the activities that fall below that alignment so then you can take your time and reallocate it to things that are getting you closer to your mission and goals in life. So many of us just go through life just doing, 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 and not actually tracking and assessing and planning. And I know I was that person for years. So one of the things for me is I, you know, as as I'm like you, I like have a hand in everything, super bit, you know, there's just always like, you know, we talk about a human human doing rather than a human being, right? And how in this alignment piece do you have people setting aside time like is you know to be in alignment with with relaxation and fun and because I would think that would be a huge piece of the population that you work with that they would struggle to be relaxed and fun and downtime more than actually the doing part yeah well it's it's a self-assessment so I can't tell you if an activity you're participating in is getting you closer to your goals to your mission to things like that but if you're not in the right mindset, then you can't be in, you know, focused on and really producing to get closer to your goals. So, yes, doing mindset, doing meditation, doing those things. If you're ranking those as a 10 for you, as a nine for you, then you're in alignment because that's that's helping you get in alignment. If you're not, though, then those are the activities you have to start eliminating. And then we go through a four-step process where we tap into your curiosity because what happens is we become, as we become robotic human adults, right, where we are taught that the way to be successful in life is to go to college, get a degree, get a job, get a promotion, find a spouse, get a house, have the children, get another promotion, but you know, get a nicer car, get a nicer house, have your kids go to better schools, you know, blah, 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 blah. blah. It's like, uh, you know, I want to vomit when I say these words, because that is what traditional society has taught us. That is the way to live. That is the only way to live. That is the way to be successful. But it's all a facade. It's all. So we blow that up. And when we do that, you lose all curiosity that we're born into this world with. As kids, you know, we'll stick a pile of mud in our mouth because we want to. We're curious as to what it tastes like. Right. But we lose the ability as an adult to be curious 
and adventurous. So we go through this task of, you know, uh, writing down three or four things that you want to try that you've never tried before or three or four things that you used to do as a kid, as a teenager, but you've gotten away from that used to bring you so much joy. It could be playing a musical instrument. It could be, you know, hiking that you've gotten away from. It could be knitting. I mean, I can't knit, but people enjoy knitting. You know, it could be um, writing. It could be uh, poetry. There's so many things it could be. And there are tons of people out there that are doing them. So what we suggest, what I suggest, is to write these things down and then try to find a tribe who is interested in these activities that you can join. Because that's how you can make connection with people, right? So let's say it's a hiking. Then go on to meetup.com and join a hiking group and then go hike with these people and and you might not be able to do that right now, but there's plenty of these groups that are doing online stuff now. So you can adapt. We are humans and we are adaptable. And, you know, so go through, tap into that curiosity, turn it into action, turn it then into connection by reaching out to three people within that group and start building a connection with. And that's how you start building community and tribes and tribes are very important if you want to be aligned in your life because you can't do it alone. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. And I, I a hundred percent agree. Um, I talk to people all the time who are trying to get sober, who are, you know, trying to do it alone. And, you know, I can just say unequivocally that, that you, you know, that is the connection is, is the key is the answer. Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, where can people go to find your book, to find more information about you? We're going to put everything in the show notes, but please tell everyone how they can find all your stuff. Sure. Um, I have, so my book is called chasing the high appropriately named. It is an entrepreneur's mindset through addiction lawsuits and journey to the edge. There are two I mean, I think all the chapters are great, but two really powerful ones. One is on flow, which we spoke about, and the other is called The Habit of Habit Making, and it talks about the importance of habits and as you evolve as a human that your habits need to evolve with them. You can find that book at ChasingTheHighBook.com. It's on Amazon and Audible, and uh, so that's where you can find the book. And to find me, uh, my website is www.michaelgdash.com, and uh, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Instagram's M-1, and uh, Facebook is michael.dash1. And, um, yeah, if you want a free copy of the Alignment Assessment, it's free chasing the high at gmail.com. Free chasing the high at gmail.com. Yes. Okay. And, um, and people who are interested in any of your executive coaching, any, you know, any of your coaching stuff, they, they would go Michael G dash.com to find you. That's where you can find all the information. You can shoot me a message there or just send me an email at Michael at Michael G dash.com. Got it. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. It was lovely hearing your story and it, and so many valuable gems in there. Absolutely. And if I can impact one person who've listened to this on the show, then job well done, Ashley. Yep. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. It'll be more than one. Great. Awesome. Thank Thank you you so so much. much. Appreciate it. 
This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information. 